I honestly believe that if there isn't some sort of program to educate children in primary schools about the necessity and importance of food in the same way that maths and science and languages and the arts are promoted, then we're going to end up in a really bad situation. Like, it doesn't make sense why the fuel for life is not part of of education. And there's been so many people who've tried to make this part of the syllabus for, for so many years, and it just hasn't got as far as it should have. And I think that's realistically where it needs to start. This is the Digital Irish Podcast a show about Irish innovation with entrepreneurs, corporate innovators, and global leaders. This show was brought to you by the Digital Irish Network, with a mission to promote both Irish innovation and Irish innovators globally. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and on today's episode, I sit down with Sam Dennigan, the founder and CEO of Strongroots, which is a plant-based frozen food brand that has conquered the Ireland and UK market and is now growing rapidly in the US. As I'm sitting here recording this, we are in the middle of a global pandemic. The coronavirus has spread throughout the world, and its impact is starting to be felt on the global food supply chain. As our palates have become more globalised, we've started to expect produce from around the world to be available in our supermarkets all year round a constant supply of berries, ripe avocados or soft mangoes. And it's clear that this isn't sustainable both for the nations that are mass producing these crops and the carbon footprint to transport them around the world. Our food supply chain at this moment in time is finally facing some much needed revision. And somebody who's been aware of this much of his life is Sam Dennigan, today's guest on the podcast. He grew up in an agricultural family, More specifically, he grew up in a fruit and veg family business, where his grandfather started Sam Dennigan and Company in the mid-70s as a potato trader to support domestic producers. And three generations later, they are one of the largest distributors of produce in Ireland. But Sam did something very unconventional. Rather than rising up through his family business, Sam opted out of the path that was expected of him. And he left the family business to launch his own business with the aims of revolutionizing the frozen food industry. Strong Roots was launched in 2015, and their plant-based foods have become a staple on many people's dinner plates, both in Ireland and the UK. But Sam, from the inception of the company, had always intentions of growing globally, and they are now trying to crack the US market. In today's conversation, we chat about the excitement and challenges of joining a family business, how to follow up an overnight success, and how he thinks the food supply chain can be upended and made much more sustainable. But to begin with, let's go back to the early days when Sam was trying to figure out his own path in life. It was, growing up, there was definitely, you know, a weird expectation of, 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 um, you know, joining into it, because that's what a that's what happened you know it was already a second generational business by the time uh, I started working in there like doing summer jobs to to earn pocket money and um, I had grown up with all of the early members of the of the staff you know as a kid I used to go out with the truck drivers and on a Saturday I used to go to work with my dad every single Saturday and just spend it 
in the office, you know, whether sitting at a desk or, you know, playing around the warehouse or whatever. Um, that was, it was always just a part of, of life. And then when I was in school, uh, I wasn't particularly good at, um, um, you know, uh, business as a subject. In fact, what I thought business was a subject then was completely disinteresting to me. Um, and I, I didn't do that well in, um, uh, business class and junior cycle. And then, you know, later on realized that there was much more practical applications of business rather than what the theory was, which is ultimately how I came into what I'm doing now. But in from third or, or fourth year in school, um, I was pretty sure that it was a creative subject that I wanted to do um, and, and sort of almost pushed back on anything to do with commerce or business, which I, which I saw as a kind of a, you know, uh, the opposite to what I wanted. That started the journey through going to art college in Belfast and trying various different subjects between visual communication and fine art painting um, for a year in their uh, core year. And then applying and, and, and being accepted into second year of NCAD uh, to do visual communications and then deciding, having been in the, the family business uh, for a number of summer jobs and then, I suppose, constantly ramping up responsibility, that actually it was, it was you know, personal connection mixed with creativity and design and all of those things where what business was and I didn't understand that ultimately I was trying to carve out something that that made complete sense to me at the time. So you didn't end up going to NCAD is that right you ended up going into the business instead of going into second year in NCAD? Yeah I I wanted to go um, traveling the the previous summer after after um, finishing the first year in, in, in college in the University of Ulster. And um, previously I'd done lots of summer jobs, you know, earning like pocket money, but, you know, it was very much part-time and it was, you know, everything that you could possibly do in manual labor, cleaning within the business. And then after college, when I came back, I, I got much more responsibility. So um was also earning more as well. And in order to, to pay for travel, which was going to be, two or three months in, in Scandinavia, uh, I needed to earn a lot of money. So um, I stayed there for the summer and I actually ended up growing to absolutely love it. Um, I worked for my dad in the fruit market as a, as a trader, uh, doing sales, dealing with all of the customers that come in to buy, but also selling to the customers on the phone who, who, who get products shipped directly to them. And um, the market is an incredible place and it's infectious both from you know, a fun and interesting character aspect as well as the trade that's going on in a very fast-paced environment. Like, the only thing that I can describe it to you as is, you know, what I believe the, you know, old-school Wall Street to be, you know, trading on mm. the phones, buying and selling stocks in a very kind of fast-paced environment. And it was kind of the same because everything that we were selling was commodities and the price changed daily and, you had to have the the edge on on someone else for a conversation with the same same buyer. So after that, I I uh, I went in for registration in NCAD for day one, and uh, then I I never went back. Um, I, <laughs> I liked I liked the job too much, and I felt that I had kind of 
grown away from from um, from uh, being able to be to spend three or four years in a in a creative subject versus the thing that I had just found in the previous three months and had become like deeply passionate about pretty much overnight. How long did you spend working in the market? I was there for um, about three, three and a half years. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah. Um, so uh, to even even too long for me. It was um, uh, very early days. Um, the market started at, you know, four, four thirty. Uh, we mm. we opened up at five o'clock, and I don't think I was ever uh, on time for work once. Um, <laughs> Uh, I was always, you know, 15, 20 minutes late because I'm a night owl and the idea of going to bed at, at you know, six, seven, eight o'clock in the evening when the day is really just starting for me is, is, is an absolute disaster. And I never really grasped, you know, the routine of, of when to go to bed and, and, and when to get up. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not something that I, that I ever thought I'd repeat, and then you start your own business, and you know talk, it happens talk. all over again. Yep, pretty much, and, and <laughs> with a with a with a different with a different drive, where you're you're excited to get up early in the morning as opposed to going into to to do a hard slog. But um, yeah, I was in the market for for just over three years before I moved out to the the headquarters of the the family business, which is um, which is in North County Dublin, in a little place called Old Town. And how long did you spend in the in the headquarters before you went off and, and did your own thing? Uh, another seven seven years. Uh, I was in the family business for ten years overall. Um, so um, I had moved from various different departments depending on the needs of the business initially. Um, so one of the key kind of parts in that change was within the the fruit fruit and vegetable market um, in. Uh, on Mary's Lane, it was uh, under the direction of my dad, um, who is one half of the company, and my uncle uh, Sam. Just to make things confusing, is the other fifty uh, percent of the business, and um, he he runs and manages the, the the retail aspects of the business. So I was moving from the wholesale business into the retail business, and um, there was just so much going on between. You know, operations, uh, logistics, and and um, uh, IT, sales, marketing. I basically did about three, about five different roles over that seven-year period, and all based around you know what the company needed and what hats were needed to be worn, without uh, you know bringing in outside resource. So I kind of picked up the new, the newer age pieces of the business that 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 were needed as, as the, the business development and, and, and time went on. Was it, was it a lot of trial and error along the way to, to try and figure out how all those things worked? Yeah. Um, I think, uh, you know, it, you, I had no clue what I was doing. Um, and I was trying to apply, you know, learnings from, from school and from college and from life into something that was very different than all of those things. And, um, you know, particular with, from a creative point of view, um, and having been obsessed with brands and having done lots of graphic design for friends and family over the years, you know, I remember coming in and, and being completely obsessed with, 
the 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 aspect the brand and 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 proposition aspect of the business um you know more than anything else but um i can honestly say that i had absolutely no idea what i was doing for for the 10 years that i was in the family business but being guided all of the time by a very experienced dad uncle and various other senior managers within the business who who took me under their wing did they connect with that, you know, where you were coming in with this this creative aspect, this visual element, where they were running a very probably somewhat traditional business that they had, traditional lines of business, which they needed, wanted to fulfill. And that was where most of their revenue was coming from. Did they welcome your kind of your focus on branding and, and storytelling and all the other elements that come with that? In, in traditional aspects of business, until relatively recently, there's been like a huge fear of the creative aspects and requirements of business. Like, you know, I think lots of individuals have made an absolute fortune from making websites for people in the last uh, 15 to 20 years, just on the basis that the perception is, is that it's unbelievably complicated. And until we yeah. had, you know, the likes of um, Wix and Squarespace, it, it, it was um, because the, 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 you know, development aspects have been changing so quickly as well. And I think the same thing is true of, of art and design. People believe that they either have it or they don't, and it's almost like a mental block. Um, you know, there were certain people in the business who had experience of, of brands in fresh produce, which is, you know, a whole topic unto itself, and especially in Ireland. And most of the, the brands in Ireland were, were either a family-based or it was a specific product. And, you know, the most successful one, of all time in, in my industry is probably, you know, the Fife's banana. Um, and right. ev- everyone grew up with that. And I think for me coming into that business, um, that was, you know, the pinnacle of, of what we could achieve as a family business eventually down the road of something that had been developed into a household brand or name. And my interest in that, I think, tried to craft the business around what it could be for the Irish consumer, consumer facing as well as industry facing, which it, which it was and, and, and is. And there was definitely people in the business. Um, uh, my uncle in particular has a very good bra- grasp of the importance of, of brand. And he allowed me to develop various different, you know, propositions of packaging and brand and territories and, and ultimately, you know, let me, um, flex the, the the creative muscles to, to try and figure out um, what was best for the business. And what led to you having the, the decision then to go out on your own and separate from the business? Brands were always the, the source of argument, um, opportunity and problem for me with the family business. I just want to, I just want to ask you on that, Sam, like when you were talking about branding, was that mainly referring to like fresh produce or was that other products that you were introducing into the retail space? Because I can imagine branding, you mentioned fifes, but I can imagine that branding produce on the shelves is, is extremely difficult because so much of the decision is, is based around price. Yeah. And, and that ultimately led me to starting my own business, the, the, the slow, seven-year realization or 10-year realization of that uh, ultimately led me to, to what now is Strong Roots. And I really wanted the, the company to be a consumer-facing brand. And for, you know, the best part of 10 years, I tried to understand 
you know, remember that when I came into the business, the expectation is, is that you're coming in as the next generation. So the difference between joining a big company and joining a big family company that's, you know, a couple of generations old, that, you know, the, the, the other people in the business and people looking inward almost have written your story for you before you've even got started. So right. you, your expectation is, is to go one way and you're either, you know, going to be good enough or interested to do that. Or, you know, you're going to be, you know, uh, you know, a cog in the machine that's just as important, but not ultimately ending up where your parents did and, you know, where their parents were before that. So um, you take a different view of what your role is in the business from the get-go, or at least I did anyway, in that, you know, if I'm going to be here forever, if this is going to be mine someday, um, then, you know, I want to put absolutely every effort possible into every single part of it. So whether it was streamlining delivery processes or, or increasing um, automation by IT or improving the brand or increasing the, the, the customer base, you were doing everything because, you know, um, you were almost working like an entrepreneur with, a, with an own business before you actually had it. And mm. that's what family business is. And that's why it's incredibly tough because the expectation is, is that you're, you're, you know, loyal to an nth degree and you have to deliver on, um, every single aspect of improvement every single day. And there can't be any stone left unturned. And that expectation of you drives you on to make sure that you can deliver for all the people that have come before you. Because, you know, when you, you know, I was I was always hyper conscious of of, of nepotism. So um, you know, you you went over and above um, what people expected of you to make sure that you know you had earned your stripes because that's what it was all about. And ultimately, you know, where I saw the business in in twenty years time um, is not where everyone else saw the business and ultimately in, in hindsight, I realized that actually, um, might've been an unsustainable place. So, um, myself and my dad and my uncle had a, had a, you know, series of very frank, honest and, and open conversations about what was and what wasn't. And, um, when we realized that what I wanted to achieve was different to what they had vision for the business, then, the question was kind of answered for me and uh that happened in you know the the early stages of, of 2015 and uh in in march uh in march we we founded strong roots and in the following october we we started trading and what was the what was the anchoring concept for, for strong roots when you first came to market it was the progression of what i had been trying to achieve in the family business so i'd had a i developed a couple of brands within the family business, the first of which was, was a potato brand, a convenience potato brand, which um, was designed for, you know, uh, a steam in the bag potatoes that you just popped into the microwave for a few minutes and they were ready in five, 10 or 15 minutes, depending on which product you bought. And I developed it around a, a novel character um, to try and replicate some success of other brands in, 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 you know, the UK and Irish market. And ultimately, what I wanted to do was try and to, to create a connection with 
the consumer like some of our competitors were in Ireland, but doing it in a reactive me too way rather than a considered, researched, developed approach to the market. Um, so the brand still exists, but, you know, in a very, very small capacity in, in, in limited amounts of stores in Ireland. And ultimately, the, the project wasn't a success because um, the pack sizes were so small that understanding all of the learnings from that project found a, a global brand which had real, uh, you know, robust qualities in, in Green Giant and, and tried to do the, the same thing with it. Um, but ultimately, you know, kind of led down the, the same path, which was uh, branded produce in Ireland. That, that there's, there's really only room for one branded produce in Ireland, and that's the supermarkets brand. And the supermarkets have spent a huge amount of time and effort to make sure that the perception of their produce sections is um, better than the others. And, you know, all things are not equal there, and some have done a, a better job than others. Um, but ultimately, their brand is synonymous with the quality of the produce that they do. So why would, you know, the, the, the holder of the keys to the, the branded retail space hand those over for a, you know, competitive entrant. And at that stage, having had two projects kind of run into, you know, similar problems, I realized that um, produce was not the place that I was going to be to be able to, to spread my wings in, in brand development. And is that what led to the, the conception then of, of frozen foods? Yeah, I, I, um, I, ha- I had done a huge amount of, so learning from the failings of the first project, I'd done a huge amount of research with a research agency in Dublin about uh, branded produce. So we had used McCain's and Bird's Eye and Green Isle as um, research topics on understanding why the Irish consumer was willing to pay X for, you know, branded peas or chips, but not the same, uh, but not have the same price elasticity within in produce. And while I was doing that research, realized that there was a huge opportunity for selling things that we had in the fresh produce aisle, new types of vegetables and you know, things that Jamie Oliver was cooking, things that Gordon Ramsay was cooking and, and, and trying to figure out how we could fit those into um, recipes and uh, for the retailers. But at the same time in Frozen, there was absolutely no development happening. They had been companies that had been bought and sold by various different private equity funds and, you know, just hadn't been innovated in the previous 20 years other than the change of packaging or whatever. There, there had been no competition. There had been no uh innovation whatsoever and so it was actually you know indirectly by chance had come across an opportunity within within the market with the same type of knowledge base needed as fresh uh to start a a frozen business and then while i was buying sweet potatoes uh by the the ton uh, for raw material in in the us um for a contract project um, I met a guy called George Wooten, who was thinking about setting up a, a, a sweet potato fry factory to use his waste product from his farm, which at the time was the, the biggest sweet potato farm in, in the U.S., um, to, to turn his waste from cattle feed into sweet potato fries. 
And the stars basically all just aligned perfectly at the one time between having the research, finding a product that I already knew that the Irish consumer loved because of its success and the likes of TGI Fridays and Eddie Rockets, and understanding in depth why the, the big frozen players weren't going to be able to get to the market first. Um, at the same time as understanding the whole supply chain of the Irish market and, and being in a position that of understanding how to how to design a brand. So, you know, people say that it's not about luck, but in 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 the case of Strong Roots, it absolutely was because the timing on everything aligned perfectly at the same time. You know, lots of it was learned, lots of it was chance. Um, but you know, to to say that um, luck and and chance and you know to use the word fluke wasn't definitely in play here would be would be crazy because um you know it's not often all those things line up at the same time yeah for sure that's fascinating i i, I didn't know that that it was uh it was it was just through through chance that you ended up selecting sweet potatoes how long were they your only standing product in the market well how long was it until you added okay did they perform extremely well from the get-go yeah i mean it, it was it was the perfect definition of of an overnight success um and something that's been really really difficult to replicate since then to be honest um you know uh, we had what every brand wants which is this consumer pull and we had it in a you know a, a focused market of changing health consumption um you know exercise and connected consumers on media at the at the at the right time so we went from you know we went from uh, zero uh, to um, two million turnover in our first year with wow. two people um, two people <laughs> yeah it was just myself and and Indira Fernandez is it was my first hire who still works in the business and um the, it was two of us and two vans and you know two person office and college green uh, which was funny enough rented off a, a friend's dad who's an architect um but uh yeah it was uh, it was a crazy year we 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 went through the most great food academy they put us on a tv ad we got tons of earned pr we spent absolutely no money whatsoever and um we it it just took off and uh, as a result of the the blue chip relationships that we had with the, the first at Musgraves, then at Duns, then at Tesco, um, we were able to get loans as opposed to taking on investment. And yeah, the first year, the first year would be hard to re- replicate. Sorry about that. The first year would be hard to replicate um in general, uh, you know, forever. Uh, it was a, uh, it was a proper, um, overnight success. Wow. And what did you do to try and, uh, what was your, like the, the fabled, uh, second album then that you came out with after that? I can genuinely say that from the moment that we launched the, the first product, we started trying to figure out what that difficult second album was going to be and had started working on it from, you know, week one of trade of our first skew right up until, um, when we launched the second SKU, which was our Cayman Quinoa Burger, which is still our number two SKU uh, in terms of, of um, 
sales and volume. Um, actually, it might be three or four now, but it's still one of the top performers. And our rationale was that we had, Indira had previously worked for Unilever, and she brought all of the research and, you know, structure and rigor to, you know, what happens next. She had the, she had the theory that I didn't have. Um, I had the, you know, the network and I had the supply chain and I had the, the sales ability, but she had the, the rigor of the, of the process of how it was supposed to happen in a bigger company. So, um, you know, she was instrumental in, in literally sitting me down and saying, you know, we have to do this. We have to figure out who we are as a company. We have to figure out, you know, why the consumer wants something else. And initially we had intended to do, you know, an extended range of vegetable fries. So sweet potato fries were the start and it could be carrot, it could be parsnip, it could be, you know, eventually potato, whatever. And um, we decided at that point that it would actually be a stupid move because what we wanted to do was build a plate for the consumer. And Mm. we realized that the most logical thing to put beside healthy fries would be a healthy, great tasting burger. And when we went out to the market in Ireland and, and the UK to look at what was out there, we were absolutely delighted to find that everything was terrible. And <laughs> then our, our only, our only goal was to make a great tasting veggie burger. Um, you know, at that stage, I can honestly say that, uh, we were, you know, very concentrated on ingredients, but there was, there was, first was taste if we could make a great tasting veggie burger to go with our great tasting healthy fries then we felt that we could replace a lot of plates and that's exactly what happened your packaging must be kind of like one of your one of your strongest selling points as well right because it's it's so identifiable amongst everything else on the shelves with the the clear white packaging and the the strong image of the product on the front. How did you come up with that concept that that's what you wanted to lead with? Yeah, it's it's been our hardest working asset from the start. And actually, it's um, I've I've recently been going through a packaging redevelopment project myself. Um, so um, in the in the middle of early to middle of next year, hopefully we'll be relaunching our packaging uh, globally. And it's been the most difficult process. I've ever come across because of how much of a good job we did the first time um, and not wanting to break what's, you know, not broken, but at the same time is making it relevant for a new market, especially, you know, having launched in the US and having so many different variations of, of products. Um, the original packaging design um, was very different to what we have on the shelf today. And when I was going through the mentor stages of the Food Academy, um, there's a guy who who has kind of built the Dublin Food Network called James Burke and does a lot of great work with the uh, local enterprise offices and, and Enterprise Ireland. He's kind of the 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 head mentor of all food businesses in 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 Ireland. But he he used to be a super quid buyer and he suggested that you know that the, the packaging was going to bring the focus of the product into too narrow a sect and that we should have another go at at creating something that was more luxury and more mass. And I left that mentor session absolutely outraged by any suggestion that we could have done better with the packaging and then slept on it 
and realised that he was absolutely right. Um, what we had wasn't going to serve a big enough catchment of people. And um, I had spent a lot of time in the US at that stage. You know, a key difference between um, natural retail in the US and what we had in Ireland and the UK was this clean white packaging that stood out as a beacon for a healthier place because America in the natural food sector had gone through this natural foods movement with Whole Foods and lots of other independent natural grocer groups, um, you know, 20 years before. So um, I took the, 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 the design, uh, I borrowed some design from, from the US and, and, and basically tried to keep it as simple as possible so therefore white sticks out like like um you know like a sore thumb it's just really really clear um clean and the consumer could identify with that and to be honest we get a huge amount of impulse sales because of it right up until this day so it's definitely been you know a major factor in the success of the products and the brand I'd love to move move on now just to talk about the expansion sure. of the brand into the US and the impact that that had. So at what point did you did you decide that the US was a market that you wanted to try and go after with the with the strong roots product and brand? Um uh, from the start uh to be honest um I had uh during my time in the family business I'd done a trip over to the US and um it was my first time in in New York. And a number of people had told me to go to Whole Foods in um, uh, Columbus Circle at the time um, to see, you know, just how good Whole Foods were at selling fresh produce. And anyone who's ever been to a Whole Foods will know that, you know, it's 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 incredible because it's it's unpackaged and it's stacked perfectly. And I was walking around this store with wonder as to, you know, how how great would it be if an Irish brand could achieve, you know, global distribution like some of the old brands. And and that was really the starting point, which was around 2005, 2006, as to, you know, the start of the journey to trying to build a global brand. And when we started the business in 2015, um, I think Indira, who was there, would, would also tell you that it, it was the objective from the start. Like we've We've never wanted to, you know, win the Irish market. We've never wanted to to win the UK market. We've, we've wanted to be a global brand. And, you know, we're very much at the start of that journey as opposed to anywhere near the end. So in order to do that, you have to go to the the country of the greatest consumers of the world, um, uh, certainly the, the, the largest. And, and so in 2016, when we started putting numbers around you know, what we would need in terms of working capital, where we would have to go to get a big enough population to do the type of numbers that we were talking about. What, what was the transition like? Uh, how did the US market respond to Strong Roots, to the story that you had and the, the way that you presented yourself? Was it an easy transition going from the UK market to the US market or was it a, was it a different beast well, entirely? we're still trying to figure that out to be honest um patrick because we're 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 not even we're just we're just over a year in um to to selling products on the ground in the u.s and that took two years of preparation now we're in a year it is running it's running well 
some better than others. We've just launched with Whole Foods um, nationwide. We launched last year with Target nationwide. We're launching um, soon with a, a new, uh, very big retailer um, nationwide. And we're still proving ourselves. Like our, our turns are doing what they're supposed to, but you know they're not where we want them um, in order to become a household name. What we do see is a consistency in the trade and repeat customer uh, with customer loyalty in particular in this exact same way that we've seen it in the Irish market, in the UK market and other markets where we've had early stage success. What we get is as long as we can get the consumer to try the product, which is obviously quite difficult, we get repeat customers. And, you know, in certain countries, 15% of our customer base has tried the products eight times or more, which is huge for, uh, you know, a, a relatively unknown brand. And in the US, we're, you know, completely unknown. Next, the, the second half of this year is where we start communicating about who we are, what we do, and what we stand for. And the first year for us was about establishing distribution so that we could have a stage on which to stand. And just out of curiosity, because I... I... It, it was very interesting to hear what you said about Whole Foods because it is like an oasis when you go in there, you know, you get mm-hmm. completely captivated. I, I lived two blocks away from the one on the Bowery and sometimes I would just go in there if I was feeling stressed at work, um, just go in and clear the head because it was nearly like a relaxing mm-hmm. place to walk through in the produce section. They've done an amazing job with that. But I, I was there mm-hmm. as the coronavirus hit and as there were stickers and labels everywhere for the amount of frozen goods that you could take, um, the limitations that were being placed on it. And also just the complete like emptiness within the frozen food section. It was, it was, it was completely vacant because that's what people went to first canned goods and frozen goods. How did, how did the coronavirus when it initially hit affect you guys positively or, or negatively, I suppose, beginning with kind of consumer demand? Well, the first thing, the first thing we were concerned about was the fact that, you know, we just put, uh, you know, our biggest shipment in America ever since the start of the business into Whole Foods. And we didn't know. And, you know, with a few minor exceptions, we were able to pull through to all of the stores that we were supposed to be in and then also start moving off the shelf. And to your point, I think Frozen was absolutely targeted. But remember that we didn't have a place in the market. No one knew knew who we were. No one knows what we are. So in a really weird way, our presence on the shelf increased because everything else was gone. So we now have consumers trying our products because in a lot of cases, it was the only thing that was there. And now we're seeing repeat custom on that. So in a, in, a, in the weirdest turn of events, um, we, we've, we've had a, a weirdly sort of positive outcome from an absolutely disastrous situation. And it could have gone either way, to be honest. Like it, 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 we've been so lucky and so grateful that, you know, Frozen is one of the ones that, that has succeeded throughout this awful, awful time. But, you know, those things just don't come around every day. So now it's our objective and our opportunity to just elevate that, that that chance that we've got and try harder and move faster and, and, and make sure that, that we don't miss that opportunity by making sure that the consumer knows what they're eating and who's it from and what we stand for. And, and that's, that's kind of what comes next for us. But 
so far, um, with a couple of exceptions, um, it's 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 worked out okay for us, thankfully. That's yeah. I, I was assuming so because it was it it was the most in demand product really there. And and have you how many how many Whole Foods stores are you in at the moment? We're represented in in all stores with at least uh, one or two products. So it's about four hundred and fifty. Um, in in some of the stores, there's wow. four products. Um, in July, they're taking on another two products, which we're really excited about. So the um, the, the full range will be on sale in some stores nationwide, um, but there's at least one or two products in every store. From a cultural standpoint then, how, how has it been for you as a CEO kind of managing these two, you know, because I, 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 people think that they're quite similar, but it's only when you go out and do business between a market like Ireland and the UK and then the US, you realize how yeah. drastically different they are. Uh, how has that been for you in managing the the kind of the cultural differences between that, both in the expectations and interactions of the clients that you work with, but then also in in kind of trying to bring over the ethos from Ireland, but also create something different in you as well? Yeah, it's been it's been difficult to be honest. Um, it's extremely different in every region. Um, no one region is the same whatsoever. No one supermarket is the chain. So, or no one supermarket chain is is the same. So, um, it. I'm still learning. I'm still trying to figure it out. To be honest, and I think I could spend another ten years trying to figure out. You know, our first customer. Never mind our most recent one. So, um, there's a different process. There's a different expectations. Uh, there's different strategies from retailers. There's different. You know people and personalities and and cultures as you've said and there's there's things that are expected like expected learnings and um presentation formats and i think the u.s has been the the most drastic change uh, of recent times because it's so unbelievably well organized to service an incredible amount of volume of suppliers in comparison to ireland and the uk in Ireland and the UK, you have private label, uh, leading brands, and then a couple of, of, of challenger brands within each category. The US is built of mostly uh, so traditional legacy brands, and then everything else um, in, in, in our world is, is brands. So where we have one, two, three competitors in the UK and Ireland, there could be 50 here for each SKU. And... That presents, you know, huge um, just time and resources. And then separately to that, within the US, you have a much more granular categorization of product. So where we have one buyer in Ireland, we might have two buyers in the UK. There's up to four to six buyers in the US for, for, for our range and some of the retailers. So the manpower just to deal with that is is, is hugely increased. What are your thoughts on the way that the global food supply chain is operating out at the moment and so, things that need um, to change? Really great question. Um, the first part is about the fact that the consumer has decided to eat unseasonally. Um, you know, having avocado year-round and having oranges year-round and having salad vegetables and, you know, perfect tomatoes and all that kind of stuff year-round is just not seasonal and the consumer has driven that change and that change has also been driven by you know 
celebrity chefs through restaurants and people wanting the things that they see in front of them and being able to recreate those or, you know, share the experiences that, um, that have been put in front of them. So the consumer also has to make the choice to not eat um, uh, unseasonally. And the only way that that can happen is, is by making choices that are more local, more sustainable, and more realistic for, um, you know, the avoidance of, of um, over-farming land and the degradation of soil. And, you know, we have a, a very, very, you know, important part of our business is, is being and knowing what the effects of what we do are. And the best way to eat all fresh produce seasonally is to actually eat frozen produce because frozen produce, because of its lack of perishability, um, has a two years plus shelf life and is harvested within the season and then stored in the most traditional method that there is in terms of just freezing food and uh, stopping the, 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 the bacterial development over time um, in, a, in a natural way. So um, frozen is actually the answer to both eating seasonally and removing food waste from the um, supply chain altogether. For every one kilo of frozen food, you replace with fresh, you're taking one kilo, one for one, out of um, uh, your your own personal consumption or, 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 or food waste loss. So, you know, it's just, the, it's, it's, so, it's the most uncomplicated, simple, tasty, convenient way to both better yourself and better the planet. A lot of people just don't understand as well the impact that this has, like the way that, you know, avocados really ravage communities in South America because they've become such a commodity crop. And in many places, drinking water is diverted away from homes into farmlands and, and people have to go and collect drinking water. They don't even get it uh, sent to their homes anymore because some of the public lands have been privatized yeah. for this, for, for the foods. And, you know, companies like Driscoll's, uh, where you see like that they seem to supply every country everywhere yeah. with berries all year round. Um, but even their even their 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 workers' rights is is completely um, unfounded of what they do. And but but the education of that is is scant. How do you think people could get educated on that? Because when everything that's coming in their direction is telling them to to yeah. eat what they want when they want, how do you think we could go about a better process of just informing people about the knock on impact think, of their decisions? Um, you know the 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 very traditional maybe un unsexy way of of the approach to food has you know has been and and should be balance like the rea- the reality of over over farming and and um you know the social issues that arise over over consumption of any one thing will be constant it's it's about over reliance and it's about the the i suppose the desensitization of um, any, any particular thing, like if you take, for example, you know, um, soy and and pea protein are the two main uh, plant-based proteins that are being used in the in the in the imitation of uh, meat-based protein, meat-based proteins in, in in veggie burgers and you know meat alternatives. Ultimately, you know, there is going to be problems with the fact that there is a shift, a drastic shift from one thing to another like the the answer is ultimately 
people understanding agriculture and regenerative farming and ultimately that it is not unlimited. And, you know, there's a huge amount of education happening at the moment, you know, particularly in our industry, but more and more to the consumer about the benefits of things like vertical farming for cities and urban farming and, you know, the the, the um, increase of the quality of soil and the importance around that. I honestly believe that if if there isn't some sort of a program to educate children in primary schools forward about the necessity and importance of food in the same way that maths and science and um, languages and the arts are promoted, then we're going to end up in a really bad situation. Like it doesn't make sense why the fuel for life is not is not part of of education and there's been so many people who've been who've tried to make this part of the syllabus for for so many years and it just hasn't got as far as it should have and i think that's realistically where it needs to start you know i think people you know even from my age forward have already made habits and a lot of people as a result of health have started health and wellness uh, trends have started to change those habits into new habits that hopefully they will teach their their kids, but it has to be, you know, uh, a, a holistic national approach in any country. Like I've obviously experienced three different versions of of the same thing, which is um, you know problems with obesity and diabetes, all related to uh, food consumption in three different countries now, and you know there's just no relative education, um, especially in poorer communities, for what they're doing at, at, a, at, a, at a much younger age and, and how they can do better. Yeah, it's, it's a very important thing. I, I had a conversation with uh, JP McMahon, the uh, yep. chef from Galway, uh, just just about two days before the lockdown was, was enforced in New York. And uh, we were specifically talking about Ireland and Irish cuisine. Uh, because I suppose an interesting thing between Ireland, the UK and the US is there are foods that the people in each of those countries eat, but none of them really have a cuisine per se. Um, and because of that, there is less of a grounding in how you approach yeah. foods and how you treat foods. And we were discussing the kind of the, the, the inversion of that, which is in some European countries you typically France and Italy and Spain, but even in more recent developments in the Nordic countries, they have found a way to come together and focus on food so that the people in the countries get more educated on food and understand the difference between their local food and imported food so that they treat it with greater respect and appreciate it more. But that oftentimes has to come together when it's it's people in the food industry, agricultural industry and the government that come together to create some sort of a manifesto but interestingly, despite in Ireland how we have so many cultural pillars, I don't think we have a very good uh, cultural grounding when it comes to food, which is why we are often so easily influenced yeah. by trends that come in from afar. Uh, and we just we just like react yeah. and latch to them straight away. One year I was in Dublin and there was no donut cafes. And I came back the next year and there was about 18 because somebody must have come in with an idea. And that's the kind of cycle of how these things go. So... It would be interesting to see in time if if that kind of cultural understanding does become more yeah, deeply rooted I, I, in society. I've, I've 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 I read JP's column and 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 we've met and I've sat through a 
presentation of his and I've, I've been to um, two of his restaurants and I think what he's trying to do is great. He's trying to, um, I suppose, make people proud of what's ours. Yeah, indeed. And congratulations. Congratulations on the success of the company. I've really enjoyed the chat. Cheers for joining in with us today. That was Sam Denigan from Strong Roots. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We've been very active during the coronavirus with virtual events and masterclasses from industry experts all happening across Zoom calls. And it's been a really wonderful opportunity for the digital Irish community that are spaced all around the world to interact and connect with each other. So if you want to learn more and be part of some of our events, you can visit digitalirish.com and you'll see an events page on our website where there's details of upcoming events and also recordings of previous events which have taken place. And as a listener of the show, if you have any suggestions of guests for the podcast, please reach out to hello at digitalirish.com. We'd love to hear from you because we always enjoy hearing your feedback on the show and also any suggestions which you may have. And alternatively, you can also reach out to me directly on LinkedIn. You can message me at Patrick McAndrew. I'd be more than happy to hear any comments or feedback or also welcome suggestions of guests that we could have on the show here because we're always looking for interesting innovators that are from Ireland but are based anywhere around the world and and have a story of either innovation as an entrepreneur or a corporate innovator and how we can share the story of global Irish innovation. And just to help out the podcast, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and review the show. It really, really helps us a lot to boost up in the rankings. And if you want to listen outside on other platforms, you can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all other major podcasting platforms. I'd like to extend a huge thank you to Kieran Kay and to Matt Stewart from the Full English Post for producing this episode. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and you've been listening to the Digital Irish Podcast. <laughs>